0: She's known as the Sausage Queen. Cara Nicoletti is a fourth generation butcher. She and her company, Seymour Meats and Veggies, have been breaking new ground in the meat industry. Cara, who lives in Brooklyn, is one of the few women who own and operate a butcher business in the United States. And her company is all about making eating meat less of a burden on the environment. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Cara Nicoletti is our guest on this week's Cityscape. She's here to talk about what it was like to grow up in the meat industry and her mission to make eating meat more sustainable. Cara, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
1: Thank you so much for having me, George.
0: Now, you are a butcher who wants people to eat less meat. A lot of people would say that's an oxymoron.
1: (laughs) Yes, no, it is. It is a strange way to go about things. I think the the more apt way to say it is that I want people to eat better meat Um, and an easy way to make better meat more accessible to more people is to eat a little bit less of it.
0: And how do you do that?
1: So um, I started making these sausages that I'm now currently selling um, under the name Seymour Meats and Veggies about 11 years ago Um, and I can tell you the whole origin story, but basically the product itself is um, all humanely raised meat and about 35% fresh vegetables, um, about 54% less meat when you're talking about other inclusions like cheese. Um, So it's a mixed, it's a blended product. um, And the the idea really is to not only lower people's meat consumption, but also to just, just make uh, humane meat more accessible to more people at a price point that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I definitely want to talk more about your origin story, but let's stay focused on the product just for a moment. What inspired you to start mixing meat with vegetables?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, I was raised in the industry. I'm a fourth generation butcher. So, um, I really was, I grew up in the meat industry. Um, and it it was a really big part of my childhood sort of learning about, how to utilize the entire animal and make sure that nothing went to waste with the animal. So about 17 years ago, I moved to New York um, and started working in restaurants to pay my way through school. And was just like very disillusioned with the amount of waste that I was seeing um, kind of across the board, but more specifically with the way that meat was being prepared. So I would say about 11 years ago, I sort of recommitted myself to butchery um, got an apprenticeship, worked for free, and really uh, with the intention of learning the ins and outs of how to eat meat in a more responsible way, um, how to sell meat in a more responsible way. And I found that the easiest way to do it was just to ask people to eat a little bit less of it. Um, So I was working in a butcher shop at the time. We were working with these gorgeous pasture raised, local animals, working very closely with the farmers. And my customers were coming back six or seven days a week. And I like we couldn't keep up with the demand. We were starting to talk about getting boxed commodity to kind of supplement for the demand and cushion it. And I really didn't want to do that. So I started making veggie burgers and putting them in the case and like veggie soups. And my customers wanted nothing to do with it. Um, I actually found that they would sort of go towards they would gravitate towards getting more meat than they had originally planned to if i was trying to push them to eat a veggie burger it like made them mad Um, so i started sneaking vegetables into the sausages that i was making um sort of under the guise of like a meal in a casing so sort of the way that we're doing it now it's more like chicken soup and chicken parm Um, and the idea really took off it's it scientifically a really difficult thing to do. Um, It took me a long time to perfect it, but um, it took off. I was making like 5,400 pounds of it, of these sausages a month with just my hands. I had no equipment. And um, so, yeah, Seymour is the scale up of that. We launched uh, last February. So we're a little over a year old now.
0: That's super exciting. But it all starts with your granddad, right?
1: It does, yeah. So Seymour is named after my grandpa Seymour, um, who is a third generation butcher. He's he'll be 92 in August um, and he really is our mascot. He's my my biggest inspiration. Um, I think he was horrified when I first told him that I wanted to get into butchery because he worked very hard to make sure that none of us would do that. Um, I think especially probably his his granddaughters. Um, He had three daughters one of whom is my mom and Um, I think he just really uh, didn't want this life for us, uh, but he's really come around to it. I think he saw that my vision for this was much bigger and um,
0: he is, he's extremely proud. He's very proud. So you grew up in a butcher shop.
1: Yeah, I did. You know, I grew up really in the industry um, watching it, but my grandpa did not, like they did not let us cut. So we would work the cash register, we would like do our homework there and hang out there. We s- saw everything, nose to tail. Um, but my grandpa and his brother were, and my great grandpa were pretty careful about making sure that we didn't get
0: involved. <laughs> Where was this?
1: So uh, originally the shop was in the north end of Boston. It was called Silette. uh, And then it moved later to a city suburb called Newton, Massachusetts. And it was there until I think 2005? Um, and now it is, I think like a big and tall store, which is very sad.
0: (laughs) Now you used to like to go into, what was it? The smelly room. Am I right? We
1: called it the smelly room, which I mean, (laughs) probably makes it sound like something was going wrong in there, but, um, you know, animal carcasses have a smell, especially very, very cold animal carcasses have like this very distinct smell, but, um, yeah, we called it the smelly room and we would kind of play around in there. <laughs> it was unique.
0: <laughs> now you came to New York to go to school, right? You went to where?
1: I went to NYU. Um, and
0: what did I, you study?
1: I studied Latin and English literature um, and actually was, you know, thinking about going to get a PhD in Victorian literature was like applying to PhD programs. But I Graduated in 2008 and basically like right when the economy completely collapsed Um, and I had been working in restaurants all the way through school and I was very jealous of all of my friends who could sort of afford to do internships at magazines and all kinds of places, publishing companies. Um, and then we all graduated and nobody could get a job. It didn't matter, you know, what your experience level was. And all of them were suddenly asking me like, is your, is your restaurant hiring? <laughs> um, so I felt very grateful to have a, a skill and a trade. Um, and I kind of wanted to double down on that. Uh, and it was one of the reasons I went back into meat cutting and really wanted to learn it like
0: from the ground up. Now, you referenced earlier that you were working for free for a while.
1: I was working um as a baker at a restaurant, um, but sort of in my off hour, I was working very full time, but baking hours are early. Um, so in my off hours, like I would get off around like 2 p.m. and then I would go to the butcher shop or on my weekends I would go to the butcher shop. Um, and I did that for about a year. And I did a lot of the very dirty jobs that nobody really wants to do. I did a lot of casing, like, you know, sausage casing sorting, which um, I would have like these burns all up my arms because they're packed in salt and like all day you're just like, your hands are in salt. Um, But I did that for about a year and very slowly got the guys I was working for to trust me enough to teach me to do things. And then um, they ended up hiring me on full time. And I worked there for I think like five years um, actually went abroad for a summer to work to apprentice for free in England after that um, and then came back and helped open a shop in Bushwick called Foster Sundry which is still there I was there for like four and a half years
0: you also worked at a place called Pies and Thighs it was that I big. did
1: that was where I was baking yeah
0: <laughs> now I know you've compared sausage making to baking how are they alike
1: well i Both of, I mean, everyone always is is sort of surprised that I went from one to the other. I think, first of all, I gravitated towards baking originally because it felt so different from what I was raised around. Um, And I was it was sort of drilled into my head that I shouldn't do what I was raised around. So I was like, well, what's the opposite of that? Um, But through doing it, especially once I started sausage making, I realized that, I mean, it's very similar. It's sort of, I think people think of especially whole animal butchery as this big heavy thing and it is like it requires a lot of strength and a lot of, um, brute force, but it is also very made up of a lot of like small meditative moments like baking. Um, and when you're making bread specifically, you're kind of looking for similar signals as you are when you're making sausages. Um, sort of the way the proteins are coming together and sticking to the bowl. So uh, I gravitated towards sausage making right away, um, probably because, partially because of that. And also partially because I knew that it's sort of like the original sustainable, sustainability-minded food. It's sort of like one of the oldest sustainability-minded man-made f- foods, um, which I really liked.
0: What more can you tell us about the process of making sausages?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so I can tell you as much as much or as little as you want, but I would say the, the biggest thing about our sausages that I'm, I'm very proud of is the amount of fresh vegetables that we're able to get in there um, and still have them sort of taste and feel like a normal sausage. Um, scientifically, it's hard to do that because water is basically the enemy of protein extraction, which is meat binding. So you have, I mean, every muscle in an animal's body has two proteins called myosin and actin. When they're in the presence of salt and kind of like moved around, um, they produce something called exudate, which is basically like meat glue. Um, And that's really what makes a sausage bind together. Uh, But when you introduce too much liquid of any kind it interrupts that bind and makes a really crumbly smushy sausage so um, when you see in a supermarket like a spinach and feta or like even apples or tomatoes th- those are dried and they're making up probably like less than one percent of the total um, so, like, I can't tell you fully how we do things, but we do them all very naturally. Um, there are some uh, some chemicals that sausage makers may use. Um, one of them is called sodium tripolyphosphate, and it's uh, sort of holds liquid and um, helps helps with that. But I don't want to use that, so we found some natural ways to sort of replace that. And um, yeah, our everything on the ingredient label is very recognizable, but we're able to really make the sausages still feel like a normal sausage.
0: All of your meat is certified humanely raised through the global animal partnership. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Sure. Um, so when we launched in February, we launched basically with whole foods as our launch partner, we launched into four of their regions, which is, um, 205 stores and they work directly with the global animal partnership. So, um, we knew that since we were launching with them, that that was gonna be our sort of standard, um, our humane certification standard. Um, and I've been really happy with it so far. Um, you know, we, we source our chickens from Mary's, which is also called Pittman Farms in California. Um, they have a great operation. We have a great relationship with Dave, who's the owner of the farm there. Um, and then our, our pork comes from Heritage Meats, which is sort of like a co-op based out of Iowa um, that is doing great work with pigs, you know, like no gestation or farrowing crates, no tail docking, lots of things that are important to us. But I mean, I will say we want to keep constantly improving. Um, I want to get to the point, like my dream is to get to the point that we have enough buying power in the market to like have someone raise our animals for us exactly the way we want. Um, but you got to start somewhere. And Gap is a great, they've been a great partner. We do um, we do something on Fridays as a team called a lunch and learn. We'll have like someone from an outside organization or whatever, come and teach everyone something. Um, And Gap was last Friday and they, they presented to us and gave us like, really in-depth information about all of our farmers and our animals it was was awesome
0: how are you using carbon credits to offset emissions
1: yeah so we work with carbon credit capital um and all of our money goes to uh, a company called gec organics which is like a regenerative soil company based in i think alabama um that is working to restore soil health i think specifically through chicken poop. (laughs) I was trying to think of a better way to say that, but I think they're, they're working on making, um, fertilizers with chicken byproducts um, to sort of encourage soil health. Something that we're looking into right now is, and we've been working on for the last few months, um, we've actually been working with this amazing woman named Andrea who built out all the environmental projects at Ben and Jerry's for like 25 years. And she's, guiding us in something called carbon insets, um, which we're, so we're hoping to move away from the offsets and maybe have our supply chain more directly, like have our hands more directly on exactly how we're turning the dial in terms of, you know, offsets, insets, if that makes sense. I think some of it with the carbon offsets can be a little bit vague and you feel like, where, where is my money going and what's really happening? So, we're working right now to kind of get more clarity on that. And, uh, but for now we're, yeah, we're working with GC Organics and they've been really great.
0: Let's talk more about your sausages and the flavors of your sausages. Earlier you said chicken parm.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. So we just launched chicken parm um, in February. It's uh, I think our number one most popular now it happened very quickly, but I used to make I mean, my thought process in making these always was kind of like, I always thought about them like the gum in Willy Wonka. That was like the four course meal. Um, I really like the idea of, I mean, I think people are intimidated by meat in general. They're intimidated by cooking meat in general. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to create a product that was, that took a lot of like the guesswork and the fear out of it. Um, so one way that I found to do that was to like present people with a meal that they understand. Um, and it, people seem to really like it. There's sort of a novelty aspect of it, but it's that these sausages are also very easy to cook with. So we have um, a loaded baked potato sausage, which is pork, um, you know, like hash brown potatoes, bacon, chives, cheddar cheese, people put it in breakfast, a lot. We see it a lot with eggs and in like breakfast sandwiches and stuff, which is awesome. Someone did pierogies with it recently, which was also great. Um, Then we have a a chicken soup, Bubby's chicken soup, which is based on my grandma's matzo ball soup. Um, Probably most most people's grandma's matzo ball soup. It's carrot, celery, onion, dill, parsley. Um, And that one goes great in anything that you use like the Holy Trinity carrot, celery, onion in. So we see it in a lot of soup bases, um, see it slice over salads a lot. Um, and then we have uh, broccoli melt, which is sort of loosely based on a Philly roast pork sandwich, which is like the lesser known cousin of the Philly cheesesteak. Um, and it's got pork, broccolini, pepperoncinis, jack cheese, a lot of garlic. That one's my personal favorite. Um, I really love that one. It, it, um, is great with pasta, make a broccoli melt or ricchetti with it a lot. Um, and then we have a La Dolce Vita, which is really our take on a sweet Italian sausage. Um, it has pork, fresh beets, fennel, fennel, a lot of garlic. Um, and it's, it's essentially just a sweet Italian sausage that has been like amplified. And you don't even actually have to like beets to like it, which is surprising. Um, The beets and the pork kind of roast together and do this like really incredible um, umami thing. And then yeah, chicken parm, which we just launched. So it's got roasted tomatoes, um, parm, mozzarella, breadcrumbs, basil. It's pretty, it's pretty killer. (laughs) Very good.
0: Now the beet specifically is 100% carbon neutral. Is that true of all of them?
1: No. So that one, we're really trying to work at them one at a time. And we were sort of able, because the beet sausage has the least amount of ingredients in it, we were more easily able to trace sort of like what exact carbon impact that sausage had from like where the beets are coming from, where they're being shipped to like, you know, the spice mix and the garlic. It was just easier to get like our supply chain completely tracked on that one. Um, And it also requires tracking like the man hours in the um, production facility and the electricity they're using and all of those kinds of things. So to not overwhelm our production partners, we gave them one at a time and BEAT was, Beat was the first one, but hopefully soon all of them will be fully. We, we offset everything from forward shipping and production for all of them. Um, but it's the back shipping that we haven't done on the rest of them yet.
0: So what's your process for coming up with flavors? When did chicken parm strike you, for instance? You're just doing experimentation in the kitchen?
1: Well, I mean, chicken parm was, uh, all of these so far that we've launched have been ones that I was making on my own um, before I launched Seymour. So we, I had formulas for them and really all it required was scaling them up and then translating them into a fully cooked product because when I was making these, they were a raw product um, and now they're fully cooked in their package. So that was actually that scale up process was um, significant because it totally changes the product when you're cooking it for like an hour before you put it in the package. But for now, um, all of the recipes we put out are ones that I've written formulas for in the past and tested. Um, We have two more coming out, actually really four more coming out sort of over the next few months that Also, are ones that I used to make, but where we're really gonna, where I'm gonna need support and where we're bringing on support is, uh, you know, we really want to branch out beyond sausage and do all kinds of other blended products. Um, And sausages are really the thing that I know the best. So once we once we get out of that realm.
0: I'll probably onboard some innovation support. How competitive of a market is the sausage industry?
1: Well, the sausage industry itself is very crowded, very competitive. Um, It's, you know, one of the biggest things that we run into is just finding shelf space um, because the sausage industry is run by the giants of the meat industry. Um, You know, you you look in the meat aisle and you see a ton of options. Um, but if you actually were to like pair it back, it's basically everyone in that whole section is essentially three to four companies, um, under like a myriad of different labels. So it's hard, it's been hard to like crack our, our foot in the door, but, um, it's one of the like single largest growing sectors in the industry. Like people have not stopped buying sausages for thousands of thousands of years. Um, and it's always sort of crazy to me. Like I, it's the Odyssey mentioned sausage, like it's an ancient food, uh, and really so little has been done to innovate in that aisle. Like we've got bratwurst, we've got the Italians, we've got like a chicken and apple. Um, but that's that's basically it. It's been around forever and it's been kind of the
0: same forever. But you are a trailblazer in this industry. You are one of the only women-owned sausage companies in this country.
1: I mean, we've been searching far and wide to try to find another like nationally distributed CPG sausage company that's owned by women. Um, and we have not been able to find anyone, so it's possible. We're the only one, but certainly we're, we're in a very small handful. Um, and it's, you know, a team of eight women. I didn't do that on purpose, honestly. Um, but it's been such an incredible joy. I cannot say enough about how wonderful my team is.
0: What does it mean to you to be this women run business?
1: I know that I'm putting my team through a lot. Um, I came from working with men essentially my whole life. So I'm very used to it, but um, you know, we're all working together with each other, but most of our time is spent working with the meat industry at large and trucking companies and frozen warehouse companies. And we're mostly dealing with men all day. And it's really, it's hard. Um, sometimes I have like a lot of guilt about the things that I put them through, but I they are so resilient and smart. And I think um, one of the things that we all love the most is every time we walk into a room or like into a zoom, um, we can see and feel it's like palpable that they're like, Oh, who are these girls? And there's like this level of doubt. And I would say by the end, we've almost always converted them to being believers in the brand and maybe even more so they're rooting for us as like the underdogs. Um, so we've really built very strong relationships with our entire supply chain, which was something that was very, very important to me going into this. I think COVID exposed a lot of the dirty secrets of the meat industry um, that I always knew. Um, Just from a human, you know, I I was sort of brought up in the industry thinking about animal welfare, but nobody ever really talked to me about human welfare in the meat supply chain. Um, So when I was founding, starting the business with my partner. was something we talked about a lot. Um, And we spent a solid over a year just building our supply chain and really converting everyone in the supply chain to be like our cheerleaders. And we know every single person. We know who's making the bands that go around the packages, who's making the dry ice, who's driving the trucks. Um, And because of that, we were really prepared for the pandemic in sort of a unique way. We were able to survive it really nicely um, because we'd already tapped into that like human element of the supply chain. But yeah, I'm incredibly proud of all the women that I work with, I think they're amazing.
0: What would you say are among the greatest lessons you've learned in this journey starting this company?
1: Um, I would say that you're always gonna be raising money. (laughs) and you better get really, really comfortable with um, asking people for money. Uh, that's been sort of the biggest shock to me, um, not shock, but biggest learning curve. Um, and you know, certainly we have a handful of really wonderful investors, but I think I, I never realized that I would be as, like need as much financial literacy as I do. Um, and that's really important too, like just, make sure that you're partnering with people who you know have your best interest in mind, but also like, don't ever just take that, like make sure you get it in writing. (laughs) Um, because it's, it's pretty incredible what happens, um, when money is on the table, how people treat each other. Um, so make sure you have a good, good lawyer and good contract writer in place. Um, but yeah, I think also I would have, gosh, I mean, I started making these 11 years ago. There was no such thing as the blended category. Um, and now it's really a thing like Purdue is doing it. Applegate is doing it. And sometimes I kick myself for not getting this launched sooner. Um, but I think we're, we're sort of, we've done this at exactly the right time. Um, because people are more interested in lowering their meat consumption. They're more open to it. So yeah, I think I would go back and be a little bit less hard
0: on myself about that. (laughs) But Kara, you are the sausage queen. You've been dubbed the sausage (laughs) queen. Yes, yes,
1: I have. Um, Which I mean, it was the guys that I worked with used to used to call me that. Um, And now all of our our LLC is actually Sausage Queen LLC. So, like you know, our my company Amex says Sausage Queen, which is very funny. Um, And all of us on the team now we call each other Sausage Queens. We're coming out with with Sausage Queen T-shirts next month. Um, it's, It's not a nickname I ever dreamed I would have, but I'm happy to have it.
0: Now, I know your website includes some recipes. You mentioned how your sausage is sometimes used in recipes. What are among your favorite recipes?
1: Yeah, so um, I made, I love Marcella Hazan's tomato sauce, sort of that iconic three-ingredient tomato sauce that's um, San Marzano tomatoes, butter, and onion. And I love making sort of a ragu with that, with the chicken parm sausage. Um, That is incredible. I also love the broccoli melt or a that I mentioned um there's a quiche on the in there's recipes on the inside label of each sausage Um, and I love there's a quiche recipe inside for the load of baked potato that I think is really delicious but I mean the beet one is so special just like on its own with roasted vegetables or like in a grain bowl or next to a salad Um, a lot of them are just like you could just eat them on their own as a meal.
0: How often are parents thanking you, thanking you for giving me a product with vegetables that my kids will eat?
1: Yeah, a, a lot. Um, it's been really, really wonderful to to get feedback from parents. Um, I think one of the things that makes me the happiest is when they say that like you know they used to have to make a separate meal for their kids and themselves, and now they're all kind of sitting down together and eating because they all like the sausage, which makes me very very happy, um, but yeah, we have a lot of moms. and You know that was something we were conscious of. I mean, the buying power in supermarkets is still by and large women, um, and the meat aisle is so heavily male branded. Um, so yes, we we have a lot of grateful moms.
0: You're changing these things one sausage at a time, aren't you?
1: <laughs> Just breaking breaking boundaries with the with sausages. <laughs>
0: What would you tell yourself back at NYU while you were studying? About- don't do
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in debt for a long time going to NYU. And I really could have just taken over my grandpa's shop straight out of high school, but I don't have any regrets. I studied English. I wrote a cookbook, which was great fun. Um, that was published by Little Brown. Um, I think all of my education led me to where I am. Um, I can't. I can't say I have... Have any regrets?
0: Well, Kara, I am hungry, so I'm going to go out and buy your sausages and make something for dinner.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for this.
0: Kara Nicoletti is the founder of Seymour Meats and Veggies. More info at eatseymour.com. That's eat, S E E M O R E.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarkey. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening.